Well, we have a guest preacher this morning, uh, Sam Morris, uh, Wichita native and recently moved back. And so uh, we like to get people serving quickly here at the bridge. So he, uh, I believe last week was his first time visiting. So uh, um, we're having him jump right in. So Sam, please. Yeah, he's not joking. We just showed up on Friday last week and uh, came here on Sunday, and now we're preaching this week. So he's not, he's not kidding. You guys get us moving quick. Uh, well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, like he said, my name is Sam uh, Morris. I'm originally from Wichita. We've been gone about 10 years. I uh, worked out in North Carolina at Southeastern Seminary out there. Uh, my wife and I, are, she's right here. My son is here. My daughter is the curly, crazy one running around in with the kids. So uh, if you see a little curly-haired crazy girl, that's mine. Um, but we just got back here uh, last week. Just to give you an idea of us coming back, um, one, we felt like the Lord was calling us back to Wichita. So uh, we lost, uh, sadly, our brother-in-law last year about this time. And uh, my sister has four kids. And so as we prayed through and walked through what the Lord was asking of us to do, uh, we felt like the Lord was saying, come back to Wichita. Go back to serve your sister, to serve the church community there, uh, and to be a part of uh, the church in Wichita. And one of the things that I saw over and over and over and over and over again as we prayed through this and talked through this and met with different people about this is that the Lord is doing something in this city. Whether it's at churches or at schools, people coming back from places all over America to come and to serve the church here, we're just one story of many different stories of the Lord calling people to come back to Wichita for the sake of the kingdom. And so I'm excited to be coming to Wichita at this time because the Lord is doing something here. And one of the things that I'm excited about doing this week is just walking through uh, part of John 17 with you. As uh, Pastor Brandon and I texted about uh, the, the, the text for this week, uh, we settled on John 17 and particularly verses one through five. I am gonna give you a little heads up though, preview of what's coming in Proverbs. Don't tell Brandon. It's our secret unless he watches this is recorded. Never mind. It's not our secret anymore. It would have been a secret, but not anymore. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But we're gonna be spending our time in John 17. So if you have a Bible, be turning there. This chapter is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus offers on behalf of us, his people. And that song we sang, he knows our name, is so appropriate for this text because he knows our name. He doesn't just pray for his apostles there that were with him in ministry. He prays it for us, for you and for me, because we receive the testimony of the apostles. Here we read Jesus's love. He prays for you, for us all. And in this text, we see that God's love for us. So my prayer for us in this text is that our love is fanned into flame as we read these first five verses and walk through them part by part. Some of us might feel worthy of the love of Jesus, but others of us, other, others of us may feel like we can hardly lift our eyes to heaven for fear of being cast down in shame. Some of us might feel like we're doing pretty well on our Christian walk, but others of us might feel like man, just the whisper of a wind would throw us off course. 
But here, whether weak or strong, small or large, hope-filled or downtrodden, our high priest prays for us. He prays for you. Like my friend Spurgeon says, however weak, however poor, however little our faith or however small our grace may be, our names are still written on his heart. Nor shall we lose our share in Jesus's love. So stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word of John 17 verses one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this time that we have together this morning. God, I pray for us. God, I pray for myself. Selfishly, Lord, I want to be able to communicate this well, this passage, this beautiful text of Scripture, God, where you pray for us. God, as we walk through this, God, I pray that where we need to be rebuked, where we we are rebuked, where we need to be encouraged, we are encouraged. God, where we need to be filled with joy, God, you fill us with joy. And God, that as we go from here, that this text this morning would fan to flame for this next week. Praise to you, glory to you, and honor to you. God, that as we walk into our jobs tomorrow, God, that you would give us the grace to do them well. For your glory, not for a paycheck, not for our coworkers, not for our boss, but to you and to the development of your kingdom. And God, when people see the hope that is in us, that we could give answer to that. So God, be with us now. I invite you to come, anoint this time, anoint these words, anoint your scripture to be useful in our lives and encouraging to us. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get rolling inside of the text, before we get rolling in the actual prayer, let's set a little bit of context for the passage. Jesus starts in verse 1a, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, or John says of Jesus, when he had spoken these words, And so when we're reading any book, it's always good to take those little cues and say, well, what's this here for? What's being referred to by John when he says, after Jesus had said these words? So when Jesus said these words, he's referring back to John 16. This is the passage of scripture where Jesus says, I have overcome the world. In this earlier text, Jesus is telling his disciples who have been regularly confused about what Jesus is saying, that a time will come when they won't be confused for he will speak plainly to them and that the father loves them because they love Jesus. He ends this section with both an encouragement and a warning. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you the church may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation or you will have trouble. But take heart. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. 
It's a solace to us that our Lord knows and warns us that the world will give us trouble. The ancient church had three ways to talk about it. They said that, uh, talk about sin. They said that there were the temptations of the devil, the work of the flesh, and the way of the world. And here, Jesus clearly lays out the way of the world is trouble. It's tribulation. You know what that's like, don't you? You know what trouble looks like in the world. You know that the world says just a little bit more of this or just a little bit more of that. And then, and then you're gonna be happy. But we all know that's a joke. We all know that's a trick. At the bottom of the barrel is emptiness and, 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 and misery and loneliness. Our culture tells us, be individualistic. Follow your bliss. Or my favorite from Parks and Rec, treat yourself. You do you, all those types of things. But treat yourself isn't going to help ourselves. A friend of mine says, pastor friend of mine says, Things that grow in a secret garden only grow mutant. Let me say that again. Things that grow in a secret garden, that individualistic garden that the world tells you to cultivate in your own heart, things that grow there will only grow mutant. The more we hide away from our community, the community of God, the more we grow like the world and less like our Savior. The way of the world is trouble, but this is not advocating that we just, you know, up and leave the world. Further in John 17, Jesus will say, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the goal is not to leave the world as some of our early church fathers and mothers did. No, the goal is to find our refuge in the father in the midst of a troubling world. And we get to take heart because Jesus has overcome this world. This is the stage that is set for us by John for the high priestly prayer. Jesus has overcome the world. This is how God wants his Bible to be written, that we have a picture of Jesus's amazing power. And then we hear from Jesus's own lips, his prayer of love for his people to his father. So let's go to the first point. Verse 1b, we all lifted up our heels. Jesus Jesus lifted up his eyes. We all lifted up our heels against Jesus, but Jesus lifted up his eyes. Before we even get to the actual prayer, we need to make this little short stop on this phrase. He lifted up his eyes. The book of John is filled with words of light and lots of different versions of seen, saw. I'm trying to think of other ways to say it, beheld. Um, But John is captivated. He's captivated by our seeing. But then he does something interesting all throughout the book of John. Whenever Jesus makes note of, or John makes note of Jesus's seeing, something miraculous is about to happen. So go read through the book of John. When when Jesus sees something in the book of John, it's going to be followed by something miraculous. For instance, look at John 6. We find our phrase, he lifted up his eyes just before Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In John 9, a little further on, we see, that Jesus saw a man born blind. And then he heals him by making a little mud and putting it on his eyes and telling him to wash in the pool of Siloam. My favorite. In John 11, Jesus lifted up his eyes and then he prayed to the father and called Lazarus from the dead. Each of these moments is Jesus seeing 
and then he is recreating. These are recreative moments. Jesus creates food for people. He creates sight for the blind. He creates life where there is death. When Jesus sees, the hungry are fed. When Jesus sees, the blind will see. When Jesus sees, the dead come to life. We really do serve a God who sees us, his people, and love us, his people. In Genesis, God sees his creation. He sees that it's good. In John, Jesus sees the fallen, sin-filled world and recreates it. His mission, Jesus' mission on earth is to seek and to save the lost and to establish the new creation in his body. Jesus is by himself, in himself, recreating creation as it's supposed to be. All throughout John, you see Jesus doing the work of recreating the world, reordering the world as it was intended to be in the beginning. He prays in the garden, just as we fell in the garden. But so we don't miss the weight of this, we have to remember where we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Jesus. A lot more can be said about this little phrase, he lifted up his eyes. I mean, as you can tell, there's a lot more there. But to conclude this first point in this first verse here in John 17, when Jesus lifts up his eyes, what happens? He prays for you. But what happens after that? The most miraculous part of all that John is pointing us to by saying Jesus lifted up his eyes, he goes to the cross for you. He echoes, he, he prays this prayer that will echo throughout all eternity for his people. And then when he finishes that prayer, he makes a conquest of death and hell and sin. He says his final words in this prayer, and then he sets his face to the cross and the horrors therein and puts death to death. This is what John is pointing us to, what is to come, what the miraculous work that Jesus is about to do. So let's go on to the second verse, or the, the second statement. God's loving authority has mastery over all our circumstances. The Spirit was on whoever picked the, 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 the music today. We were all lined up. All my points are all the songs we sang, and I'm pretty sure, let's check, the song afterwards is gonna, is gonna fit in just, just right. The spirit is here, he is moving. We have already been seeing that in the, the words sung, the words highlighted in the songs that we've sang. And here now in the text, God's loving authority has mastery over all our circumstances. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The time has come for Jesus to accomplish all that he has set out to do. The glorification of the Father and the Son means the sending of the Spirit. Earlier in John 7, Jesus says that the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here, as he is praying, we're getting an idea that the Spirit is coming. He's just around the corner. And we know kind of the power of the Spirit, don't we? That in Pentecost, when he shows up, 5,000 people are saved, at least, because I think it just says men. 
So we have no idea how many more were saved. Here in John 17, he's saying the spirit is coming. It's just around the corner. When the father is glorified and the son is glorified, the spirit comes. But Jesus is saying that his glorification should come because you, the father, have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Where else do we hear about this authority? We hear about it in Matthew 28, where all authority is given to Jesus. So go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We also read about it in Revelation 2, where it says that the one who conquers and who keeps the Father's works until the end, to him the Father will give authority over all the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Friends, our Savior has all authority. I think we, 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 we feel like sometimes he has a little bit here and maybe a little bit there, but if I go over there, he doesn't have authority. Or if I come over here, he might not have authority. He has authority. When I walk into work tomorrow, he has authority over that space. Whether that space is owned by the state or someone else, it doesn't matter. He has authority in that space. When we walk into the valley of the shadow of death, even there he has authority, not just over the shadow, but over the very valley. When we wake up in the morning and feel that our hearts quake at the prospect of the day, he has authority and he has promised to be with us. When we question whether or not we've made the right decision to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, he is with us and says, I will be with you to the end. When the cancer rages, when the spouse dies, when our kids are wayward, when the tears come without ceasing and there is no end to the dark night of the soul, Jesus, even there, even then, always and forever is there. And he is there to walk with you. Why? He's walking with you because he loves you and to you, his church. He has given eternal life. What is eternal life? This is verse three. Verse three, eternal life. This is it, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So point three, God loved us by making himself known to us. He loved us by making himself known to us. What does it mean to know the Father? First John helps. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. So little children, keep yourself from idols, First John. Hosea 2, I think, paints a beautiful picture of what does it mean to know the Father He says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I'll say to, to, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, we shall say, you are my God. Hosea 6 goes a little bit further. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. 
He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains water the earth. Church, to know the Father is to know the Son. He is the one that was torn. He is the one that was struck down. He was dead and revived on the third day that we may live before the Father. We are those who are betrothed to the Lord and we were formerly a people of no mercy who have received mercy. We were formerly a people of no king who have become the people of God. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, so that we may know Jesus. He is the true God in eternal life. So as 1 John says, we need to keep ourselves from idols. If eternal life is knowing God, we have to keep ourselves from idols. So we're all theologians, right? I mean, some of us are trained, some of us are not, but we're all, we all have thoughts. We all have thoughts of who God is, which makes each of us a theologian. But it's possible to be a theologian, even a you know, PhD from a seminary theologian, and not know God. It's possible to love your ideas about God more than God. It's possible to build God in your own image, to imagine him to be the God of the Bible, and that the God of your mind and the God of scriptures are not nearly the same person. But you give him the same name. You call him Father. You call him Jesus. You call him the Spirit. You say, this is my Lord, but he looks more like you. We have to persist in knowing God. For this is eternal life, to know him and to be known by him. How do we know him? We spend time with him. Any moment with the God of the Bible, with the real God of the Bible, will quickly dispel any myth that we believe in our own mind. Well, how do you know that you know God? Do you know God or have you constructed a God after your own image? A God who cannot respond to your prayers. Indeed, you can't even hear them. He doesn't have ears. A God who can't even see your pain because he has no eyes. A God that has no words of power for you because he has no mouth. How do you know God? How do we keep ourselves from idols? We can't do it in our own strength. <laughs> I can't tell myself that I know who God is on my own. I have to be in his word. I have to be in communication with him because as Second Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. To the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very, very great promises. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He gives us the power. We must trust that he is the one who holds us. Long time ago, about 10 years ago, for me, a long time ago. I was walking through a kind of a dark night of the soul where I just, how do I know that I believe? We were at church, this little girl with pigtails sitting up, well, 
roughly in this area. I was sitting back there and I was watching her. Just watching her sing, worship. She seemed so sure, so confident of what she was saying. And I felt so unconfident about what I was saying. I thought, how do I know? How do I know that I know that God knows me and I know him? That I'm not just believing a myth that I've constructed in my own brain, that I've thought something up about God who is not really God, and I'm pinning all my eternity on my own thoughts. How do I know? In this text, this second Peter text, he has divine power. Sure, I can hold on to him. I can hold on to him like the ship is sinking and he's my only life raft. But it's not that I'm holding on to a life raft that's gonna hold me up. It's that I'm holding on to a God who holds me up. I can cling to him with everything I have. I can white knuckle it all day long, but that's not enough. He holds to me. And that is how we stay in our relationship with God. We don't trust to ourselves to keep ourselves as Christian. We trust to his divine power through his spirit to hold us and to keep us and to make his face shine upon us because on our own, there is no face to shine. So Jesus is accomplished with the works, or sorry, Jesus is accomplished works, point four, makes the father's heart burst. Jesus' accomplished work makes the father's heart burst. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The reason that we are able to rely on the strength of God for growing in our knowledge of God is because Jesus has done all that is necessary to glorify God. I said again, the reason we are able to rely on the strength of God for growing in our knowledge of God is because Jesus has done all that is necessary to glorify God. You didn't do it. Jesus did it. He has accomplished the work given to him by the Father. Here in John 17, Jesus looks at his perfect life lived, sinless life, and says, the work is finished. In John 19, 30, at the very end, Jesus says, it is finished. And he yields up his spirit. When Jesus says it's finished, give you a hint. It means it's finished. Someone says, hey, you got to do this thing in order to make Jesus's work like real, like you really got to complete it through baptism, through communion, through this, through that. That's not true. Jesus finished the work. We don't believe we did a thing. Therefore, now we know we believe that Jesus has done the work and we hold to him as he holds to us. There's two things done in this great exchange, which Jesus accomplishes for you. First, our sinfulness is given to Jesus. Second Corinthians 5, he made him God, the Father made him Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bears the wrath originally reserved for us and our sin. Colossians 2 says, even when you were dead and because of your offenses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Jesus, when he forgave all of your offenses. So second in this great exchange, Jesus's righteousness is given to us. We're not perfect, right? I just got one on that one. Right. We're not perfect, right? Sorry. I'm not Brandon, if you couldn't tell. Skinnier. <laughs> He's going to see that. 
<clears throat> our hearts are deceitful. Thank you. Uh, our hearts are deceitful. <laughs> and even we don't fully know ourselves. Our culture says, follow your bliss. I don't know what my bliss is. A, and B, I don't even know if it's good or not. We need righteousness, not our own. Like the father says, come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. Friends, Jesus, the accomplished work of Jesus is our gospel. Gospel means good news. It is our good news. There's no greater news. Without this news, we remain in our sin and are hopeless and helpless to do anything for ourselves. The glory of God that, we, that he would come to us, Emmanuel, God with us, is that he would live in such a manner to be completely perfect and then of his own volition, take up your cross and walk it up to Calvary and then to lay down on it and spread out his arms and say, nail me to it. While we take the nail and the hammer and we put it through his hands and his feet, Yet it doesn't stop there. His blood flowed out for you. His tears dropped down for you and he died for you. But this exchange of righteousness and sin can't stop with the death of God. It carries through to the third day when all at once in the stillness of the grave, a heart beats. And at the beating of that heart, he breaks the power of sin. He crushes the head of the devil and he cancels the grip of the grave. There is no need to wonder though what it would have been like to be in that grave on that day. Just remember your own salvation. You remember it? When it felt like you could finally hear your heart beating for the very first time. That is the sound of the accomplished work of Jesus bringing glory to the Father. Last point. We glor uh, glorifying one another is what the Trinity has always loved to do. We're gonna get a little theological on this one. We have already, but we're gonna get a little more on this one. Glorifying one another is what the Trinity has always loved to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here in the last verse, the son longs for the glory of the relationship that he had with the father before the foundation of the world. All right, buckle up. I, can, I can't crack my knuckles. I feel like if I could like, you'd all be like, okay, we're getting serious. But I can't, so we're just getting serious. Let's talk about the Trinity. God is love, which is just another way of saying God is Trinity. Jonathan Edwards lived a long time ago. He said in some helpful way was that the perfect love of the Father for himself, perfect love of the Father for himself is the person of the Son. And the love shared between the Father and the Son is the person of the Spirit. Okay, let's say it again. The perfect love of the father, father for himself is the person of the Son. And the perfect love shared between the Father and the Son is the person of the Spirit. 
The threeness and oneness of the Godhead hinges therefore on love. This is why we say God is love. And it is in this love that the Son has always been. So, like I promised at the beginning, where you guys are going in Proverbs, and Brandon will not find out about, but we're not supposed to tell him. Pastor, uh, what Pastor Brandon has been working through in Proverbs, in Proverbs 8, it says of wisdom, change the word wisdom for Jesus, that he was established, uh, when he established the heavens, excuse me, he was there. When the Father drew a circle on the face of the deep and he made the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Jesus was with the Father at creation, looking and seeing that this is good. Jesus is the wisdom of God and the one who was with him at the beginning. Jesus was with the Father at the beginning, seeing that creation was good. He is now here with the Father on the eve of new creation, the creation of redemption and longing for the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and for the church. Jesus is love because God is love. And God is love because love is Trinity. So let me remind us where love was exhibited most for us. Let me tell you where love was shown. Love was shown in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus sweat drops of blood. It was exhibited in Pilate's hall where Jesus bared his back to the plowing of the lash and gave his body to be spit upon and scourged. Love was seen at the cross. Amid the groans of a dying God, beneath the droppings of his blood, it was there that love was revealed. Bear witness, children of God, where does your love spring from? It springs from the cross. Have you ever seen a sweet flower growing anywhere other than the root of Calvary? It was when you saw love so amazing, so divine, outdoing its own self. It was when you saw love in bondage to itself, dying by its own stroke, laying down its own life. Even though it had the power to retain it and to take it up again, it was there your love, our love was born. And if we wish our love when it is sick or small or tired to be recovered, take it back to those places. Make it sit in the shade of the trees of the garden. Make it stand on the pavement and look while the blood of our Savior is still running. Take it to the cross and say, look anew to the bleeding lamb and surely this will make your love spring from small to great. Go walk the road of Calvary. Go stand on the hill of Golgotha. Go sit in the tomb. Is Jesus there? Does he stay nailed to the cross? He's not in that tomb. He is risen. Behold, he is the first and the last and the living one. He died and behold, he is alive forevermore. 
and he has taken the keys of death and Hades. This is how the father glorified his son whom he loved. Christ might not be at Calvary. Christ might not be at the hill of Golgotha. He might not be in the tomb, but he is still praying for you. This high priestly prayer is a picture of the intercession that Jesus makes on our behalf before the throne of God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Friends, this is the love of Christ on display, that we would know Jesus whom God has sent, who has been glorified, is being glorified, and will forevermore be glorified in his love for you, his people. He lives to make intercession for you. And here, in the beginning of John, Uh, 17, we see him doing that. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time. God, I pray that you would illuminate your word more fully for us. God, that these short moments that we were able to spend together, God, would be moments of encouragement, moments of of growth. God, that we would uh, seek to know you more, to be known by you more. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, he's the one who holds us. He's the one who keeps us. And God, we are in desperate need of clear vision of you. So God, we ask that as we go from here, as we sing and as we prepare for the next couple of days before we gather again, Lord, that you would give us a clear vision of you Give us your spirit to know you more. God, we thank you that Jesus lives ever to make intercession for us. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.